Father, we ask for your grace this morning. We ask that you would be glorified to speak to us through this incredible passage of, of Scripture. Please open up our, our minds, open up our eyes, open our hearts, Lord. Let us see our sin for what it is in accordance with your word. Cause us to be rightly convicted. Cause us to be filled with a contempt and a hatred for it. Cause us to feel our need for your forgiveness and to cry out to you. And Lord, to see your forgiveness as great and as glorious and as, as wonderful as it truly is. Lord, we know that it's impossible for us to be rightly impacted by your word apart from your spirit. And so we ask that you would go out during this time, that you would glorify yourself, not only in the proclamation of these truths, but in the impact that it has on us. We ask that you would do this for your own name's sake, and for Christ's sake, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. If you're not already there, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43. Everybody has verses that they keep coming back to over and over again in their life. Some call them life verses. I'm not really a big fan of that word because I like to you know, think that every single verse in the scripture is my life verse. Kind of the same reason that I'm not a big fan of creeds because I believe that this should all be our creed. Um, but there are verses that, for me personally, I'm sure it's probably the same for you, that keep coming to your mind over and over and over again in the course of your life. And this one, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, is probably the verse that I think of more than any other verse. And that's probably because I think of this verse every single time I confess my sins. Every single time, and believe me, I confess my sins a lot, so that's probably why I keep thinking of this verse a lot. Um, but this verse is so profound, and I'm actually, I'm kind of nervous this morning to preach on this verse because it's one of my favorite verses. I know that no matter what I do, I'm not going to do this passage justice. And so I ask for your forgiveness before I even begin, and I pray that by God's grace, he will still open your eyes to the, to the beauty and the wonder and the glory of his forgiveness that he's revealed here. So we're in between series right now. We just finished Ecclesiastes last week. We're probably going to start Colossians in the next few weeks. It's still kind of tentative. But in the meantime, we're going to be doing a couple topical sermons. And so I had the privilege to preach this morning. I got to choose on any passage I want. And so I didn't just choose this because this is my favorite passage, one of my favorite passages, but because we also had a long road trip last week, and we went and we picked Sarah um, down up from school in L.A., and we drove her back. And over the course of the six-hour drive, had lots of time to pray and to listen to great songs and books and scriptures. And I was just, I was moved to tears several times in contemplating this. And I wanted to preach on something else initially, but then after that drive, I just thought, I can't preach on anything else but this verse. I have to preach on this verse. Um, so that's one reason why I wanted to preach on it this morning. But, but the other is because this, you know, we all know each other very well. It's a small church. And I know that many of you regularly struggle with feelings of guilt and shame and sadness and remorse over your sin, some of which are right, some of which aren't. Many of you struggle with assurance, and these struggles with, with guilt aren't necessarily struggles that are right for you to have as a Christian. I remember back when we were ministering uh, at the Salvation Army at the rehab center, and we would teach there on Tuesday nights. One of the most common objections I got to the gospel, do you know what it was? From these men in particular, it was this, that my sin is too great for God to forgive me. My sin is too big. I'm too bad. God can never possibly forgive me. And you know what? Many of them saw their sin better than we did. But the truth is, 
and this applies to you just as much as it did to them, that through the gospel there is no such thing as a sin that is too great for God's forgiveness. And by God's grace, we're going to get a glimpse of that this morning. So if you're still struggling with guilt, if you're still struggling with shame over what you've done in the past or what you continue to struggle with, that is something that you should not feel anymore as a Christian. We'll talk about what is right to feel. Um, in this verse in particular, Isaiah 43, 25, is in my opinion one of the best verses to smell and to taste and to touch and to feel the forgiveness of God. Let me read it to you again. It says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. One of the downsides of doing topical preaching like this is that you kind of lose the context of the passage. So if you study the Bible, you know that Isaiah was one of the major prophets. Major not meaning that he was more important than the minor prophets, but that he wrote more than a lot of the other prophets did. And he was a prophet during the 8th century B.C., which would be the 700s B.C. And chapters 40 through 55, he's actually prophesying to the Israelites under the Babylonian exile which would be in the century following that. So it would be in the, six, in, the, in the 500s, in the 6th century B.C. So he's preaching to the Israelites under the Babylonian exile. The audience is God's defeated people under worldly domination. And God here in this passage is consoling his discouraged people in exile, promising to reveal his glory to them. And remember, the reason why they're in exile in the first place is because of their sin. And so here we find this wonderful promise, this revelation of forgiveness from God. And so my goal with this sermon is pretty simple. It's, it's to show you the greatness and the glory and the wonder and the majesty of God's forgiveness. And I pray that you will be gripped by that too. Three points for you. The first one, your sins. The second, God's forgiveness. And the third, your reaction. So God's sin, or sorry, not God's sin, your sin, God's forgiveness, and then your reaction. First, your sins. And we must start with your sins, see? Learning the forgiveness of God requires that we understand what it is we've been forgiven for, what it, is, what it is that he's forgiven us. And it is true, in fact, the depth of your sin, the horribleness of your sin, reveals and reflects and magnifies the greatness of God's forgiveness. And this is not true in our own relationships, too. You know, how different is it when a wife forgives her husband for taking a cookie um, that, that she had baked for guests coming over for dinner than it is when she forgives her husband for committing adultery against her. What is the difference between those two? The difference is that this sin of adultery is so much greater and so much more heinous than the sin of taking a cookie for, for something that she had baked for guests that would be coming over later. And so the wife forgiving that, that reveals the depth and the greatness of her mercy and her love and her forgiveness for her husband. And in the same way, in the same way, the greatness and horribleness of our sin reveals the greatness of God's forgiveness towards us. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And the your here is you. It's your transgressions that we're talking about. You specifically, the people of God. Remember, the context here is the people of God. It's national Israel, which represented the people of God for all ages, in fact. And this word transgressions, it literally means an act that goes against the law. It goes against the law, a rule, or a code of conduct. In other words, it's a crime. And the word transgress, you know, transgress, uh, in, if you break down the etymology, it literally means to cross a line, to go out of bounds. So, you know, in basketball, all of the players are required to, to play within the boundaries, right? And if one of them goes out of bounds and there's a penalty, they have to turn over the ball to the other team. And so in the same way, when you transgress, when you cross the lines, that's what this word is getting at. And notice here, it's not... I am he who blots out your transgression. It's 
transgressions. It's, it's a plural. It's many. There's more than one sin that you've committed. You haven't just crossed this line once. You've crossed this line many, many times before. And what are your transgressions exactly? What laws have you broken? What lines have you crossed? I want you to look at this with your own eyes. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to briefly look at a summary of God's law, a summary of God's boundaries and his lines. And I want you to see from the scriptures what specifically you have done. What are your transgressions personally? And when we read this, many of you are familiar with this passage. These are the Ten Commandments. I want you to be a lawyer, and I want you to examine your heart against the word of God. Test yourself to see how well have you stayed in the boundaries, how well have you obeyed God's law. And by his grace, you will feel the personal weight of this. We're actually going to work through these commandments in reverse order. So we're going to start with the 10th commandment, which is Exodus 20, verse 17. God says this. Are you ready? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When was the last time you coveted? And these aren't supposed to be rhetorical questions. I need you to actually think about the specific last time that you coveted. When was the last time that you coveted? See, coveting is to de desire something wrongfully, to inordinately want something without due regard for the rights of others. I doubt that you guys have struggled to covet over your neighbor's ox because your neighbor probably doesn't have an ox. You also probably haven't coveted your neighbor's male servant or female servant unless you live in a very wealthy neighborhood. But you probably have coveted their car. Maybe your neighbor drives a Lamborghini or just a 65 Fastback. Maybe you've coveted their house. They have the most beautiful house on the street. Maybe you coveted their job. And I'm willing to confess my sins to you because I know that my weakness magnifies the strength of Christ. And so I can tell you that, you know, in, in my job, you know, as, as a banker working with clients that, have, that, that are making a lot of money, I have coveted in the past weeks people who come in and they work at companies like Google and they're software engineers and they go in whenever they want and they leave whenever they want and they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and I have felt covetous desires in my heart and I've had to seek forgiveness for that. I've had to seek forgiveness for that. Maybe you don't covet their job, you can covet their portfolio, their wealth, their vacations, whatever. The point is this, that if you've broken this law, which I guarantee you you have, you are a coveter in God's eyes. Next one, verse 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. We often phrase this verse as, as you shall not lie. And so again, I will ask you, how many times do you think you've lied in your whole life? If you were to put them all together, what would you, if, if you had to put a number on it, what would you say? Some of you, if you're younger, you might say, maybe I've lied a couple hundred times. If you're older, maybe I've lied 500 times, 600 times, maybe 1,000 times. But even if you haven't lied that much, how many times, how many lies does it take to make somebody a liar? It only takes one. It only takes one lie to make you a liar. And not only that, I mean, we're not just talking about blatant lies. God considers anything that is a false truth or a mistruth a lie. If you have fibbed, if you have skewed the truth even a little bit, how many of you have exaggerated before? I exaggerate all the time. That actually was an exaggeration, what I just said. Did you know that the Holiness Club, John Wesley, so John Wesley was, was part of a college group, and they would all get together. One of the biggest things that they did was they would hold each other accountable. 
one of their accountability questions was, do I exaggerate? Can you believe that? Of all of the things that they would ask each other, this was one of their top 16 questions that they would regularly ask themselves. It really is that important. The truth is, you're not only a coveter, but you're also a liar. How about the seventh commandment, verse 15? You shall not steal. This is so serious. We, we don't get how wrong these things are. How many things do you take that don't belong to you? Maybe when you were a kid, it was something small, like taking, you know, taking a dessert or something from the freezer, maybe stealing something from a grocery store. Um, at work, you, know, you, you can steal time from your company. If you're, if you're using time, if they're paying you to do something and you're not doing something that you should be doing, you're stealing time from them. Perhaps you take energy from people that you shouldn't have. Perhaps you borrow things and don't return them. When was the last time that you stole something? Did you steal anything even just this week? This is so serious and so offensive to God, it makes you a thief. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Many of you might hear this and you think you'll escape. But if you know the New Testament, you know that God's law is so perfect. It is so high and so holy. It doesn't just apply to your external actions. It actually applies to your heart. That means that if you have had, Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery with her in your heart. If you have lustful thoughts towards a member of the opposite sex, in God's eyes, you have committed adultery with that person. How many of you, if I forced you to come up here on this stage to confess every single thought that you have had, even just this last week, would pay a pretty penny to yell at that? How much would you pay? $500 maybe? $1,000? To confess every single thought you've had just this week, you'd probably be so mortified that even if I did force you to come up here, you'd run out immediately afterwards because you'd be, you'd be so ashamed of yourself. God knows every single one of our thoughts. And believe me, he knows that we're all adulterers too. Verse 13, you shall not murder. The same applies to this. I doubt none of you in here have actually killed somebody before. Or if you have, you've gotten away with it. I don't know anybody in here who has actually physically taken somebody's life. But have you ever had feelings of hatred towards somebody, wrong feelings of hatred towards somebody? Because Jesus says that this too is murder in God's eyes. That if you have hated somebody in your heart, that is equivalent to taking their life in your mind. On the road, on the road, people cut you off. Do you, do you feel some kind of resentment towards them? Do you want to do something to them, any harm towards them? Perhaps that's murder that you're committing. Or maybe it's a deeper, a deeper sense of hatred for a friend that did something wrong to you or somebody who really messed up your work life or your career. How many lives have you taken in your mind? We are so evil. I don't even get this. I have sinned against God so many times. I have probably killed many of you. I've probably killed many of you in my heart many times. What's wrong with me? Verse 12, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land um, that the Lord your God has given you. My parents loved this verse growing up. This was one of their favorite verses. In fact, I think it was the only commandment I had memorized for the first six years of my life. They always said this one too right before I got a spanking. It was usually preceded the discipline. But think about when you were a kid. Every single one of you, I guarantee you, at one point in your life disobeyed your parents. Some of you more so than others. But it's not just obedience in the sense of doing what they say the first time. It's honor and reverence for people of position, for people that you owe reverence to, that you owe honor to, to respect their role in your life. I remember one time, very distinctly when I was a kid, 
Actually, this happened multiple times. When I would do something that was really hurtful to my mom, it cut me so deeply to the core because I realized that I am hurting the person who literally made me. I'm hurting the person who gave birth to me. I'm hurting the person who was spending all of her time and energy to take care of me and give me, and give me my food and my house and my bed, and she cleans my clothes, and she makes me food. She literally, I could not live without her, and this is the person that I'm hurting right now. So, so evil. We're all so disobedient and so disrespectful. In verse 8, remember, sorry, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Isn't it interesting that this is one of the Ten Commandments? Of all of the things that God could have commanded, he says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, we don't really do the Sabbath the same way that Old Testament Israel did. We have kind of a New Testament version of it that, you know, the apostles would refer to as the Lord's Day. But it's still the sixth day, that, or the seventh day of the week that it's set aside to honor God and glorify God and to gather us with the church. And we have verses like in Hebrews that commands us not to forsake the gathering of the saints. And how many of us are just so negligent of the church? That we're just so willing to put the church aside, to, to desecrate God's day, to spend our time on Sundays doing other things instead. We desecrate the Lord's day. In verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This includes using his name in blasphemy, using it as a cuss word. Isn't that just so grotesque? That we would use the name of God, that we would use the name of Christ to express hatred and contempt for something, that his name would be a cuss word to us. But not only that, it's just any time you speak of God irreverently, any time you speak of him wrongly, this is blasphemy in his eyes. Blasphemy. You're a blasphemer. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. This church, probably more than others, knows very well that idolatry isn't just creating a gold idol that you bow down to. It's anything that takes the place of God in your life. Anything that supersedes its proper place and position in your heart. We bow down to other altars like sports or work or entertainment or fun or hobbies or family. All many times, often these things are good things. They're blessings from God, but we put them in places in our hearts and minds that they should never be in the first place. They exceed God. We do not treat God as he is or other things as they are. You're an idolater. I'm an idolater. And last but not least, this is the finale for them all, and perhaps you can say if you've break, broken this one, as Jesus said, you have broken all of these commandments. He says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. God shall be God to you. And this is tied very closely to this sin of idolatry, that God must be your first and greatest love. And if he is not, then you have broken perhaps the most heinous commandment of all. How many of you can honestly say that your entire life you have done nothing but love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Not a single person in this room can say it. And if you have, you broke that ninth commandment, which makes you a liar. In which case, you're not really loving God with all of yourself. This is a crushing blow. Any chance of success that you have at keeping the law, you lose right here. Not to mention the fact that this isn't just the things that you do that are wrong, but the things that you don't do that you should have done. James 4, verse 17 says this, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 
You have sins of omission and the sins of commission. Not only have you done all these things against God's law, but you have failed to love God perfectly and to do all of the good that you were supposed to do. In fact, with this in, in, with this in view, we can say that every single moment of your life, perhaps not a moment has gone by where you have not been living at least in some kind of sin, where there is something better that you should be doing that you're probably not doing at that moment. You know, Calvin and Luther, two of the greatest reformers in church history, applied this law exactingly to their hearts. And they, through the course of their ministry and their teaching and their preaching, they bore such great conviction over their sin. And you know what the two things they had in common were? Two things. They had a lot more other things in common. One, they took the word of God seriously. And two, they were both lawyers. They were both lawyers. They had some of the greatest legal minds of their time, and they would take this fierce loyalty and dedication to the law, and they would see themselves in light of the law and see the guilt and the conviction that it brings upon them and the judgment and condemnation that they deserve from God. They went through this and saw the violation of all of God's commandments and laws in their hearts, in their minds, in their words, and in their actions. The summary of all of this, just is just the Ten Commandments, this is just the summary of the law. We haven't gotten into all of the nitty-gritty details. We haven't even talked about loving your neighbor as yourself or all of the other new commands that we find in Scripture. And what we see here is that you are a coveter, a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, disobedient, blasphemer, idolater, and a God-hater. How does that make you feel? You know, one preacher said that it's not, it's not you all who feel convicted that should be concerned. If you're feeling guilty and sad, that's, that's, that's a right response to hearing this. It's those of you who sit in the pews and are stone cold when you're hearing this. It's those of you who sit there and having a hard time staying awake listening to this. If that's you, then you should be more concerned. Hearing this and feeling guilty Feeling convicted is not necessarily a wrong response. Notice another word here. Let's go back to the verse, verse 25 in Isaiah 43. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Slightly different word than transgressions. It is a parallel concept that we're talking about here. Sin has a lot in common with the word transgression, but it has a more personal connotation than the word transgression does. Transgression is like a crime. It's breaking the law. But sin is an offense. It's a personal offense against a real person. It's a personal offense against God, against the living God, against the God who made you and loves you and redeems you and cares for you more than any other person in existence. And that is the context of this passage. We read through here in the, in the prayer of confession and assurance. My, my dad read through the previous, the preceding verses. And the point that God is making is, look at all I have done for you, Israel. I have made a pathway through the desert. I have given you water when you went thirsty. I have cared for you for your enemies. And this is what you do to me. This is what you do. You do not call on me. You do not weary yourselves from me. You do not even bring offerings to me. All of your sins are against this person. They're against somebody who loves you and cares about you more than anyone else. I'll tell you what, maybe you'll feel the same way. Nothing makes me feel like the worst person on this planet than hurting somebody that I love most. Nothing makes me feel worse than offending or harming somebody that I deeply care about. And yet how much more so? My friends, my family, how much more so my precious Jesus that I hurt and that I harm every single time that I sin it's not just breaking the law 
but it's hurting a person that we're talking about. It's not just a transgression, it's a sin. Every single sin, personally offensive to Christ, there is no such thing as a little sin, church family. There is no such thing as a sin that is not significant or not harmful to Christ. In fact, every single sin should break your heart to a million pieces. Do you know the pain that your sin has caused God? I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine if God cried the tears that he would have shed over my sins. The tears over everything that I have done to him. I don't get, I don't get the magnitude of my sin. You see, God hates sin. God hates sin, and it is so worthy of his hatred, and it must be punished. Every single sin deserves an eternity in hell. You know, the New Testament has this analogy for sin. It compares sin to debts. It, can, it compares sin to being in debts. These are, this is Jesus' own analogy. And you see, justice demands restitution. Those debts must be paid in every single sin Every thought that I have thought and every desire that I have had in my heart that was offensive to God is a debt, and I am indebted to God, and that has to be paid for. And your debt, friends, is so unbearable. Your debt is far greater than you can possibly begin to imagine. Spiritually speaking, you are bankrupt. You have absolutely nothing to offer Christ. And you know the language of this verse here in Isaiah 43, 25 it's actually language of accounting. It's language of bookkeeping. See, God keeps perfect books. We see this in Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 12. He says, this is John speaking of his revelation now. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. According to what they had done, it was all written down. Every thought will be called back to mind. Every single word accounted for and meticulously recorded in God's perfect books. Oh, I can't even imagine the books that are written on me. He needs more than one book. You know, Psalm 69, verse 5, David said, You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. There is no such thing as a sin that escapes God's perfect bookkeeping. So just how bad are you? Just how bad am I? I know all of you. None of you would say that you're perfect. Everybody admits that they're not perfect. But you see, our problem is not that, just, that we've committed just a few sins. It's not that we've broken God's law a couple times, that we're sick in need of help, or that we just need some advice or our guidance. The scripture says that we're actually dead. That spiritually speaking, you're dead to God. I've heard the analogy oftentimes of salvation is you being drowning in the ocean and God is reaching out to save you and you just have to reach out with your hand to grab him. You need to grab on to that life vest. And while there are some valuable things about the analogy, it's not as accurate as I believe it should. The reality is that you're not drowning in the ocean in need of help. You actually drowned. You're at the bottom of the sea. And God has to dive off the ship down to the bottom of the ocean to bring your lifeless corpse back to the beach so that he can pump the water out of your chest and resuscitate your heart. That's salvation. That's forgiveness. You see, we comprehend so little of our sin. That one sin, one lie, one covetous thought deserves an eternity in hell. And do you know why each sin is so great? It's so great because of how great the person that it's against. 
It deserves an eternity in hell because it's against an eternal and infinitely glorious God. And so it deserves nothing but the worst infinite punishment. And yet apart from Christ, and this might be hard for you to believe, apart from Christ, the Bible teaches that you have done nothing but sin. That it is only by his grace that you have ever done anything good in your life. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. This is before God was about to destroy the world with the flood. And he actually says the same thing after he destroys the world with the flood. Reads, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination of the thoughts of the heart, only evil all the time. In theology, that's what we call total depravity. Total depravity. There is nothing good in you apart from Christ. Nothing. You have nothing. My and your wickedness is incomprehensible. This cannot be qualified. This cannot be quantified. Apart from Christ, there is nothing good in you. But see, the problem is this. That God is good. That God cannot tolerate evil. And last week, we ended the book of Ecclesiastes with Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. Do you remember what it said? God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And friends, apart from Christ, we have nothing good to offer him. We only have evil. And that is what will be brought into judgment on that last day. And so the biggest question, and this is not an exaggeration, the biggest question in the entire Bible is how can this good and just God actually forgive a sinner like you? How can he forgive a criminal? It's so dire. That's why we call the gospel the good news. Because it is so needed. It is so good. It's our salvation. So the second point which I want to look at with you is God's forgiveness. Hear God speak to you. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. You can look at the verse again. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What word is repeated twice in that verse? It's the word I, and it's repeated for emphasis. It is, God is saying here, it is the one that you have grieved that promises to save you. The emphasis is on the forgiver. The emphasis is on God himself. You don't get this. The same one you sinned against, the same one that is your judge, is also the one who, quote, blots out your transgressions for his own sake and will not remember your sins. You see, but there's even something deeper that this verse reveals. It's this, that the forgiveness of God is not just something that he does, but it's who he is. It's not, I will blot out your transgressions, but I am he who blots out your transgressions. This is revealing something about the very character and nature of God himself, that he doesn't just forgive, but that he is the forgiver, that, he, that salvation and forgiveness and redemption are all part of his character. Indeed, you can go so far as to say that this verse is a statement about himself, that God is the one who blots out transgressions and forgives our sins and remembers them no more. How great is this attribute of God? It's wonderful to think about those attributes which are most beneficial to us. And it's hard for me to think of one that is greater than his love and his grace and his forgiveness through Christ. So wonderful, so glorious, so amazing. Now, does that mean that it was easy for God to forgive you? Was it easy for God to forgive your sins? 
Absolutely not. And I hate it. I hear it, I hear it so cheapened in the church today. I hear people say things like, you know, just say you're sorry to God and he'll forgive you. Just, you know, go to church, do a little bit of religion, try your best. God is forgiving. We forget that God is forgiving, and yet at the exact same time, he is fiercely holy. And he is perfectly good and perfectly just, which means that he must punish every single sin. I can't even imagine what the conflict in his soul is like. That here he has nothing but the deepest desires to forgive each and every one of us for every single crime and offense that we have personally committed against him. And then at the same time, justice must be satisfied because he is a good God and a perfectly just God. I want you to imagine that you're in a courtroom and that you've been brought before the judge and tried of many different charges, many heinous crimes, and that every single list of crime you are found guilty for. And then you're standing before the judge. He has given you your sentence. And you say to him, judge, I'm a good person. I give money to the poor. I help out my elderly grandparents. I go to church every Sunday. Look at all the things I do. I'm trying my best. I'm sorry I made the mistake. Is the judge going to say, oh, you know, that's good. You know, forget about that. You can go be free. If he did that, he would be a wicked judge. You see, God is not like that either. A good, God, a good judge must say, that's great, but you've committed the crimes and the penalty for that must be paid. And even if I want to forgive you, I can't because justice must be satisfied. And so you see, this is the problem, right? That God can't forgive you. God cannot forgive you unless justice is still satisfied. But this is, to me, the most glorious part of this passage that God is so forgiving, that he is so forgiving, he is literally willing to do whatever it takes to forgive you. He is willing to do whatever it takes to forgive you, and that is exactly what he did. It cost him everything. It cost him his own son to earn your forgiveness. He said, what's it going to take? This penalty has to be paid. And I am so forgiving, I must forgive them. I will do anything, even if it means that I have to give everything up so that they can be forgiven. So how dare you cheapen the forgiveness of God? Do you know how hard it was? The answer is no. We have no idea. We can't even get close. I just pray that God would give us a, a glimpse so we can be rightly gripped by it. So go back to the courtroom. You hear charge after charge listed against you. Guilty, guilty, guilty is the verdict. Transgression after transgression listed. Sin after sin. And then the judge sentences you to death. And then at the same time, the judge, who is also the victim of your crimes, offers his innocent son to die in your place. He says, yes, you're guilty. You deserve to die, but here's my son. He's never done anything wrong. Take the death sentence for him. Say you can be forgiven. Say you can be free. And then the son stands and he takes your spot and he dies in your place. His blood is shed instead of yours. And so justice is satisfied. The sins are all paid for. The crimes are, are punished. The charges are dropped and you can walk out of the courtroom totally free and innocent and blameless. And this is exactly what God did for you through Christ. Exactly what God did for you through Christ. Colossians chapter 2, 
verses 13 through 14. Listen, Paul says, When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Notice it says when you were dead, not when you were trying to find your way, not when you were seeking help, not when you were doing your best. When you were dead in your trespasses and in your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our trespasses, having canceled the debt ascribed to us in the decrees that stood against us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What a glorious verse. And he does that for all who repent and believe in him. I love this phrase, going back to our verse, verse 25, that God blots out your transgressions. You know what that means, to blot out something? to wipe it out, to efface it, to erase it, to cancel it, to obliterate it. Go back to the image of an account book. We're talking about bookkeeping, right? You go back, and when a debt is paid, when a debt was paid back in that time, they would cancel it out. They would cross it out. That meant that that debt was now legally void, that it had no bearing on you, that it was paid for in full, that it's as if it never happened. And so now go back to your books, your books, the books that are filled with every single transgression, every single sin that you have ever committed against God, all the charges written in his book, every single one, they are all crossed out. They are all forgiven. They are all blotted out. God takes a massive, a massive cup of whiteout filled with Christ's blood, and he crosses out every single transgression that you have ever committed. Sins are all debts, and Jesus has paid for them all. Sins are debts, and he has paid the price in full for each and every single one of them. And you see, no sin is too great. No sin is too offensive. And I think that you can, you can see how dishonoring that it is to God that you would say to him, God, you can't forgive me. My sin is greater than your grace. My sin is something that not even Christ can save me from. How dare you say that to Christ? He suffered and died to pay for every single one of your sins. And yes, the punishment you deserve for that was incredible, and that's precisely what he paid for. Paid it all. They are deleted from your memory, deleted from your hard drive. Whited out of his book with his own blood. I'll rephrase it as one commentator said. He, he says that this verse is saying that God, God is saying, I will acquit you of all your debts. I will never charge them upon you. I will dash them all out. I will not leave so much as one item, not one sin legible against you. Yes, your sin is great, but God's grace is so much greater. How much he has forgiven. How great the sins, the debt, the love, the sacrifice of Christ that he has paid for. And the sweetest part to me of this verse, and this is why this verse I'm constantly reminded of when I confess my sin, is because of how God treats you now. How he treats you after his forgiveness. As if being pardoned isn't enough, God's forgiveness is so great that he says in this verse, quote, I will not remember your sins. He will not even remember it. He forgets about it completely. And remember here means to recall or to call to mind or, you know, it's usually as, as affecting your present feelings or your thoughts or your actions. The nature of God's forgiveness is such that he forgives and he forgets. He forgets. Your sin is completely forgotten by God. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How can the all-knowing God forget your sin? It doesn't mean that he doesn't remember that you sinned. Of course, he knows every single thing that you've done. And nothing you can do is going to change his accurate 
um, his accurate knowledge. But what it does mean is that he doesn't bring it up. He treats you as if you have never done it before. In his eyes, you have never lied. Through Christ, in his eyes, you have never stolen. You have never coveted. You have never disobeyed your parents. You have done nothing but love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength every single moment of your life. That is how God treats you now. Everything that you've done is completely forgiven and forgotten. You are innocent, perfect, guiltless. In God's eyes, I have never lusted. And he will never mention that. He will never hold it against me. He will not bring it up again. Not now, not forever. Eternally forgotten. And this is how he relates to you. And this is why I need to be constantly reminded of this essential gospel truth that every single time I sin, it is forgiven and forgotten through Christ. To him, I'm just as perfect as I was before through him. Don't you wish other relationships were like this? Don't you wish in your marriage that after your argument you could just somehow take that back, that your spouse could relate to you as if you never said those harmful words? Even if you strive for that, it's still not possible to achieve it as perfectly as God achieves it in your relationship with him. That to him, after you do something that is so offensive and so hateful and so sinful to him, it's as if you never did that before. That your relationship with him is perfect through Jesus. He holds no grudges. You can't get this kind of forgiveness anywhere else, but you have it with the one that you need it from most. How gracious and glorious and amazing is his grace. So why would he do this? Why would he forgive me? He says so in this verse, I am he who blots out your transgressions because you deserve it. No. Because you tried really hard. No. Because you were smarter or better or more religious than everyone else. No. Because you grew up in a Christian household. No. He says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. He does it for himself. He does it for his own glory. The purpose clause is this. It is not because of anything that had to do with you or because he saw good in you or because you believed in him, but simply because he was most pleased to do it. Simply because it most glorified him. It most reflected him. It most revealed him. And it most pleased him. You say, that's kind of self-centered. But what does this reveal about this God of ours? It reveals that God is most reflected and most glorified in forgiving criminals at the cost of his own life. That's what it reveals about this person. That forgiveness is what reflects him most. I have to say with Micah in chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our, all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I know we're not done with the sermon yet, but I just I want, I want to pray with you very quickly. Lord, thank you so much for your great forgiveness. We ask that you would open our eyes to see it and to receive it as it truly is, that you have hurled all of our sins behind us. Let us respond rightly to you in love through Christ. Amen. So last but not least, I want to look at your reaction before we close. Peter says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Truly times of refreshing. You don't know what you're missing out on if you haven't experienced this forgiveness of God. And this forgiveness is guaranteed for all who repent and trust alone in Christ to save them. So think about this right now. 
what do you feel most guilty of? Of all of the heinous things that you've done in your life, what stands out? What are you most ashamed of? What do you feel the most guilt for? Many of you still struggle with this. Think about this. That is completely forgiven through Christ. And not just forgiven, but forgotten. Through him, you have never done this. And it's wrong for you to still carry guilt if you're forgiven. It's offensive to Christ that he has given his life so you can be set free from that. And yet you're still carrying and dragging this guilt along with you. Maybe regret is right, remorse is right. You should be upset about what you've done. But there is no more guilt and shame for the Christian. Because, as Isaiah says, he has blotted out your transgressions for his own name's sake, and he will not remember your sins. I remember the first time that I heard this verse. It was in the midst of a, of a really, of, of a brutal struggle with sin. And I heard this, and I, I, I knew deep down that God cannot accept me. He can't possibly accept me. And you know what? I was right. He can't. He can't apart from Christ. But through Christ, all of that was forgiven. And I realized, yes, what I'm struggling with is horrible, and this is so hard, and I can't beat it except through him. And yet I know that through Jesus, he treats me as if I have never been like this. He treats me as if I have never struggled with this sin. To him, I'm only perfect. But some of you have not forgotten what God has forgotten. Some of you still hold on to this guilt. You must forget it too. If God has forgotten it, then it is truly forgotten. And so do you feel that? Do you feel the freedom? Do you feel the perfection? Do you feel your redemption? Are you, ha are you happy and guilt-free like it? If not, why aren't you? Maybe the truth is that you're just not a Christian. Maybe you've never really experienced the true forgiveness of God. Or perhaps you are a Christian. You know, there is no forgiveness apart from Christ, but even if you are in Christ, maybe you don't know it enough. Maybe you don't truly see God as he is and see your sin as you are and see the forgiveness that you have received through the gospel. If you want to see it more and taste it more, then dedicate yourself to the means of grace. Seek him through communion and through scripture and prayer, and I guarantee you, if that is your desire, he will reveal himself to you and he will make all of these things known. Don't you hate it? Don't you hate it when you forgive somebody and they still feel guilty for what they've done? We've all had that. Somebody might have done something really bad to you and they sought your forgiveness and you've forgiven them and they're still guilty. You said, I forgave you for that. Don't be upset about that. It's done. I forgot it. No, I still, oh, I'm just, I'm so upset. I still can't believe that I did that. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. Leave it behind. It's in the past. Don't be that person with God. He's forgiven you. It's forgotten. It's done, dealt with, paid for in Christ, buried in the tomb, in the grave, and you've been resurrected with him. Forget about it. I think of the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. Remember Christian, in the very beginning, who was carrying such a heavy load and burden on his back, and then he goes to the cross, and the load falls off his shoulders, and he feels free. He feels light. It's gone. He's forgiven. That was broken at the cross. Your guilt does not need to be carried by two people. It was carried by Jesus. You don't need to carry it too. Some people still feel like they need to make up for it. Must receive God's forgiveness. You know, um, in the Catholic Church, traditionally when you would go to a confessional and you would confess your sins, the priest afterwards would say these words. He would say, I absolve you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I've always thought, gosh, I would, just, I would love to hear those words from somebody. Wouldn't it be wonderful for God to come down and say to you in person, Keith or Brandon or Kurt, you have been completely forgiven for all of your sins. I have truly paid for them in full. They are absolved. That would be wonderful. And that is precisely what he has done here. 
In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And do you struggle with assurance? Do you ask questions like, how can I be saved when I keep struggling with this? How can I, how can I possibly be headed toward eternal life when I struggle with this sin on a regular basis? You must remember that your works had nothing to do with your salvation to begin with, and they still have nothing to do with it. You were saved by God's grace for his name's sake, and he is the one who has blotted it out, and he is the one who doesn't remember it. You didn't have anything to do with that beforehand, and you don't have anything to do with it now. And so, yes, you're supposed to press on and strive for righteousness, but your works and your performance has nothing to do with your standing with God. Your assurance is sealed with him. Who are you to question God on this? The same justice that once worked against you is now to your benefit, because I can guarantee you God will not punish the same sin twice. If he punished Jesus for it, he will not punish you for it. Jesus bore your guilt, which means that you have none. So your sin, you sin more than you know. Your sin is far worse than you can possibly begin to imagine. And yet, God's grace is far greater. Christ is greater. And he is greater and his forgiveness is greater than all of our infinite, incomprehensible sin. We sang that wonderful hymn, Dark is the Stain, that we cannot hide, what can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? First John 1 John 1.9, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. So in closing, if you are redeemed, then live like a redeemer. As Paul says, walk as children of light. If you've experienced the forgiveness of God, how can you not show that same forgiveness to others? Thus we have the command in Ephesians as well, forgive each other just as God forgave you in Christ. Wow, what a command. How do he forgive you in Christ? He forgave you and then he completely forgets about it. That is the same thing that you are commanded by God to do to others. And I don't know how you can't. Lest you be like the unmerciful servant in the parable who received his great debt paid and he doesn't forgive the smaller debt that was due to him from others. Your debt by God is so great and that has been paid for in full. How can you not forgive the debts of others? It's like being given a cold cup of water on a hot day. You should want others to experience that same thing as well. And you should be the most happy of all people. Christians should be the most happy. You have had this greatest guilt lifted from your shoulders. All of your sin blotted out. Remember no more. And we should be able to say with King Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17, he's saying to God, In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. How could you return to the sin that ruined you? Instead, you love God and have a new heart and want to please him and hate the sin that hurts him so deeply. And so I want to read to you Luke 7, a few verses from Luke 7. Recall that when Jesus was visiting a Pharisee's home, a woman came in, and she was wiping his feet with her tears and her hair, and she had poured perfume. And one of the Pharisees, you know, he's saying to Jesus, don't you know that this woman is a sinner? How could you possibly let her do this? And Jesus responds by saying to Peter in verse 41, he gives this analogy, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Who do you think will love him more? 
Verse 33, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. You are just like this woman. You have been forgiven so much, and so your love for Christ should pour over into every facet of your life. And the more you see your sin as it is, and the more you see God as he is, the more your love for him will grow. And I pray that we will not only love him just because he has forgiven us, but we will love him because he's so worthy of it. It's not just what he has done, but it's who he is. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sins no more. Let's pray. Lord, I know that even in preaching this, we are not nearly as gripped by these truths as we should be. And so I ask that you would forgive us for the hardness of our hearts and that you would penetrate them by your spirit. Cause us to be deeply and rightly convicted of our sin and to acknowledge it and confess it to you and to turn from it with all of our hearts and to turn to you and to throw ourselves upon you and your cross, to trust in you and in you alone to save us, to stop trusting in all of these other means by which we seek forgiveness from you. Forgiveness is only found through your Son. If any of us are not truly saved, we ask that you would, that you would break our hearts and bring us to salvation this morning, that you would cause us to know you and to truly trust in you and be saved, and that if we are, that you would forgive us for feeling so much guilt and shame when you have borne it all for us. We ask that you would remove this from us, that our response would be one of deepest love for you, because you are so glorious. You are the great forgiver, the one who blots out all of our transgressions and all of our crimes you have forgiven. We love you, Lord. Increase our love for you and glorify yourself in everything that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.